Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Does everybody have a copy of the handout? I don't. I would give you mine, but I need to follow it. It's okay. I read it three times. There are some extra ones. First, I I just want to say or acknowledge how lucky we are that we get to spend a weekend doing this together. First of all, it's wonderful to sit with other people. Um, I think of these things as like pop-up community. And um, (coughs) also, um, we're lucky that we have a venue that's as beautiful as this one, so that we can be in relationship with the natural world and also with each other and our own minds without uh, going to some special place. So um, we've been exploring the seven factors of awakening. The one we spent most of the time with yesterday was mindfulness and really establishing what we mean by mindfulness. And instead of thinking of the seven factors as you know, I get one, then I get the next one, then I get the next one, which is sort of how we think about lists. There's a funny joke, which is uh, Christians love God and Buddhists love lists. <laughs> um, so instead of thinking of, you know, this ladder-like system, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, um, the way I think about the seven factors of awakening is that the foundation is mindfulness, And then the other six are qualities that get balanced as mindfulness um, gets deeper. And um, the second quality after mindfulness was investigation, which I think just starts to happen intuitively, is that as some calmness shows up in the whole mind-body process, then what happens is we start to notice patterns that we become interested in. So you could say that investigation is just becoming interested in a way where we have beginner's mind, where we're not just analyzing everything that's showing up. And that takes a while to get the hang of because, you know, if your pattern, as we talked about earlier this morning, is self-judgment, when something comes up, that's the default set of glasses that you're going to use to look at it. So you could say that meditation is like an education in clinging. And that's what we're doing. I say watch your breath, but mostly what you're watching is clinging. 
right? Clinging to pleasure and trying to get away from what's not pleasurable. This is just what the mind is toggling between while we practice. So then the third quality is energy or virya. And um, energy is important because we want to have balanced energy. Uh, Some people put so much emphasis on having a lot of energy in their practice that they just become uh, restless or stressed out. Um, Maybe there's a bit of competitiveness in that also. Um, And then some people, they just don't have any energy. And so we have to work on some of the other factors so the energy then comes comes into balance. The fourth factor is uh, pity or joy. Um, I usually translate this not so much as joy, but as delight. And uh, does anybody know that or remember that feeling when you're ill and you've been in bed and then finally one day you, you get out of bed and you go outside, you just step out the door and there's just this incredible feeling of delight. It, it, it wasn't caused by anything outside. It's just the fact that you can do this. You know? this it, it, it kind of borders on gratitude or appreciation. It's kind of a quiet joy. And one of the important factors related to joy is that it's a non-energizing joy. Okay, So it, it's, a, it's a joy or a delight that's creating a deeper kind of calmness. It's not... American joy. (laughs) Did I say that? Um, When you're very engaged in something, this joy comes up spontaneously. So if you're swimming and you're totally in swimming, or having sex, or walking, or making art, or even reading, and you're just totally engaged and there isn't some other story happening then uh, automatically some joy arises and maybe at a deeper psychic level that joy happens because it's a relief from constantly creating a me so automatically this like joy bubbles up and the place I know, notice it a lot is, you, you know, some of you know, I, I, I teach quite a few silent retreats every year. And silent retreat, usually the first day is just like people's body is kind of, just like you are doing now. The, the people's body is just getting used to sitting. And then the second day is often people are really tired because their bodies finally start to calm. And then the third day they start getting into it. Sixth or seventh day, some of the more difficult material arises, and then always towards the end, people have this huge amount of joy. It just starts bubbling up out of nowhere. People break out into laughter, um, or people just uh, get happy. <laughs> yeah? Because there's a relief that comes when things start to calm down. And the strange thing about it is it takes nine or ten days. <laughs> for this to happen. So, um, that's joy. A tranquility. Um, tranquility is uh, also 
So, so one way of thinking about these last three, five, six, and seven is that they're positive feelings that occur that are not energizing. Okay? So um, uh, joy, tranquility, concentration, equanimity, they're like positive emotions even that show up, but they don't energize you. They, 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 they have a real grounding quality to them. Uh, so tranquility is kind of like a feeling that you've done a job really well. Do you know that sense where, where you complete something and you know, oh, that's a job really well done. That's, that's sort of what, uh, what tranquility feels like. And, and it's a sense that you've been at peace with something. And I think that even in a short retreat like this one, you'll, you'll bump into this quite often. Is this, I think that's an easy one to find. Is there's these moments where, oh, you hear the sounds outside, or uh, did you say a sentimental kind of feeling, you know? And, and you notice it's happening, and then once in a while, oh, there's just a kind of tranquility. Sounds don't necessarily stop, but the mind is not all entangled in it. Just it's like, and it's really grounding, it's earthy. I'm going through these a little quicker because I, I, I mostly want to spend time today on equanimity because I think that's the most important one, actually. Uh, concentration, uh, samadhi. This is one of the great delights of uh, meditative practice. Um, some, some is a very interesting word. So some, through Roman, becomes the word sum, S-U-M, uh, equal, and uh, through the Latin becomes the word com, C-O-M, like community, to, to bring together. And adi means one. So samadhi, which is like one of these terms that people are just like, oh, it's this state you get into one day where everything's just like trippy. Um, samadhi just means the coming together as one. So... Uh, I usually like to translate samadhi as integration. It's the integration of the subject, the one who's looking, and the object, what you're looking at. Okay, so for example, um, uh, noticing breathing. Oh, there's my breath. I'm noticing the breathing. I'm inhaling and I'm exhaling. And then the closer and closer you synchronize with the breathing, something happens where there's just breathing. But there's not a feeling of me that's breathing. There's just breathing happening. And eventually you can start to do this with any object. So there's sounds, noticing sound. Oh, I'm over here. There's a sailboat outside. I can hear the jib and the ropes and the kids. And, the, and then something happens where you just forget about yourself. And there's just sounds and there's not a self that they're referring to. And this is called concentration or samadhi. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's not esoteric. It's not some state you get into. Samadhi is a quality of mind that's impermanent. You'll have there's moments of samadhi, and then they change. Oh, one with the sound, and then you're hungry, and all you can think about is Tara's chocolate. <laughs> Did anybody have any yesterday? By the yes. way, yeah. So, um. 
Is there more for us today? There is some left. Okay, because it's the most important uh, part of my Um, So the one I want to focus on the most today is uh, equanimity. Um, And the way I think about equanimity is that it's really the kind of practical benefit of formal meditation practice is that it works in like the deep fibers of our system teach us how to become equanimous and um, equanimity is really a practice in a deeper letting go of clinging it's a practice of non-clinging because there are things that we want to let go of aren't there? There are things we don't want. (laughs) There are things we want to be liberated from. And you can see when you're sitting still and you're just watching the mind how exhausting it is to be rehashing the same arguments, to be thinking about the same people you can't forgive, to be thinking about the same colleague at work who drives you mad, But also, maybe there's some troubles we have in our life or some conflicts we have that actually you can't resolve. I mean, I'm an idealist. I think, oh, we can work through anything, but actually it's not true. There's lots of stuff with other people where you can't work it out. So how do you be with that also? And this is, I think, where equanimity is really, really important. Um, Before we jump into going deeper with equanimity, I wanted to read something by um, a Buddhist teacher and scholar whose work I follow really closely named Stephen Batchelor, uh, who I'm actually going to see in a week. Um, Here's what he says. In uh, the Numerical Discourses, which is an anthology of some of the teachings, um, there is a sutra called Refinement of the Mind. This is Stephen talking here. In it, the Buddha says that we have to be careful when we practice meditation not to give exclusive attention to concentration as it could lead us into a state of indolence, not to give exclusive attention to energetic effort in case it creates restlessness, and not to give exclusive attention to equanimity in case it stops us from concentrating on dissolving defilements. This struck me, he says, because we're generally told, concentrate, put in more effort, be equanimous on the path. But the Buddha is telling us that our practice needs to be balanced, that putting too much effort, too much emphasis on effort is quite obvious. We try too hard. We need to try hard, but not too hard. What makes sense for our whole organism, body, mind, and heart. So that's why I say equanimity is something that needs to be balanced with all the other factors. Because a lot of us think being equanimous is just being like wood. Right? Oh, nothing is going to happen to us. And a lot of people also interpret uh, equanimity as indifference. Where, oh, there's some suffering over there, but, you know, I'm just not going to be touched by this. 
which is a little bit how you Stormy talked about anger, right? It's like, oh, I'm just the anger is going to go away, and I, or or it'll come, but I won't be touched by it. Um, on the contrary, equanimity makes it more possible to feel emotional states. It makes it more possible. And the word uh, equanimity, the, the word in Sanskrit is upeksha, which means uh, to look over. To look over. So anger comes up, and equanimity means we can look over the anger which means we can feel the anger, but we can look over all our reactions to the anger. That's what equanimity means. It doesn't mean that anger is not going to affect us and that we don't feel it. Also, the Buddha called equanimity uh, Brahma-vihara. It's one of the four Brahma-viharas. So Brahma means divine, and vihara vihara is a very interesting word. It's the word that eventually gets translated as temple. So if you travel in Burma or Thailand, if you go to a vihara, it's a temple. Uh, But it means a dwelling place or abode. So this is interesting. So the Buddha says a dwelling... So the Buddha says uh, equanimity is a dwelling place. It's a divine abode which I would translate as a refuge, a place to come back to. So I like this description of equanimity. So equanimity is the place you can come back to that's safe and that's home. It's a place to abide. It's a, it's a dwelling place. It's not detachment or indifference. Um, The place where we really need equanimity is when we have afflictive emotions. Yeah. Because um, <clears throat> when you uh, feel resentment or you feel bitterness, uh, it's a very confined feeling. And when you're confined, uh, you don't feel a sense of home. Actually, you feel like you're all over the place or you feel like you can be blown around very easily. Um, Or if you think of other afflictive emotions like envy or greed. Uh, Can anybody kind of touch that? Does anybody get either of these, envy or greed? When I walk around this neighborhood and I see all the boats, (laughs) I think, oh, the neighbors must have a little bit of envy going on little bit of uh, competitiveness going on. Because I'm sure if you have the latest boat and then your neighbor gets the latest, latest boat, uh, there's going to be a little uh, envy there. Am I off base? (laughs) (laughs) So the thing about afflictive emotions is that they're very, very narrow and very confining, like envy and greed. The thing about equanimity is that it's a Brahma-vihara. It's divine, which means it's unlimited, which means you can't wear it out. There's no end of equanimity. And probably a kindness is like this, and uh, compassion is like this, where it's something you can't wear out. 
love is like this. It doesn't really wear out. And if it wears out, it's probably not love you're talking about. It's probably something else like lust or clinging or anxiety. There's a lot of people that confuse love and anxiety. Do, do, do you know what I'm talking about? You, you know when you meet someone and it's really dramatic and the whole world is like... There's a lot of anxiety in that, actually. Oh my God, they haven't called. I must love them so much. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's exactly love. So anyways, that, that can be another workshop, maybe. Um, so here's the paradox. The more you develop equanimity, the more the spectrum of emotion that you can feel increases. Because there can be more balance. So equanimity is a calm, and it means literally to equalize, to equalize. Um, <clears throat> there's a teaching in Tibetan Buddhism that I won't get into too much, but it, it's interesting around equanimity, where they talk about how every mental state has what's called a near enemy. So it's a state of mind that looks like the mental state that you want, but isn't. Okay. So it's said that the near enemy of equanimity is indifference or neutrality. So indifference, it appears like it's equanimous, or neutrality appears like it's equanimous, but it's actually an enemy of um, equanimity um, because a lot of people think equanimity is like a lukewarm kind of neutrality oh I'm, I'm not going to make a move here but equanimity is actually a creative so sometimes when I'm teaching about equanimity I call it creative equanimity because it's kind of a balanced groundedness out of which you can respond creatively as opposed to envy where there's not much that not much creativity in envy, not much creativity in jealousy, not much creativity in, in uh, uh, greed. But when there's equanimity and greed arises from the place of equanimity, you can see there's a lot of different ways you could look at greed. Another word for uh, equanimity. I'm just going to. I'm trying to avoid the Sanskrit, but the, or in the Pali. But this, I like saying this word, uh, tatra majahata. Not nice. Um, and it uh, tatra means there, and maja um, means the middle. So placing yourself there, right in the middle, um, which I translate as being in the middle of things. Being able to be right in the middle of an afflictive emotion, right there with it, without jumping out of it. That's another way of thinking about equanimity. Right in the middle of your life. How? Right now. It's interesting, you know, um, <clears throat> a few years ago I did some, uh, some exploration of burnout. Uh, I was really interested in burnout. And the literature with the most research on burnout is uh, nursing. 
And I was surprised when I read in uh, nursing literature the research done on burnout and how the number one cause of burnout uh, is when someone's values don't line up with the values of the institution they're working in. I thought it would be overworking or uh, you know, stuff going on with colleagues, but actually the number one issue is when the, the, the person's internal values uh, don't match the place they are working in. And you might wonder, well, what does this have to do with e equanimity? Everything, actually. Because there's so many times in our livelihood where we have to make calls. And we don't want to make a call out of anger or reactivity, but we want to make you know, calls about the direction of our life or our work from a kind of internal compass so that our values and our bodies are in line with each other. So one thing about a daily practice is that every day you connect more with how you really feel and what you really think, and you don't get as persuaded by the cultural stories of success and so on that um, are violent, actually. They, they shut us down. So... Um, <clears throat> If you take that further, then maybe the goal of practice is not um, practicing equanimity so that we can be more balanced. Maybe the goal of practice is becoming more balanced so other people can be more balanced. So this is the way that I teach, and some of you who have studied with me before know this, is that I don't... Uh, uh, emphasize this idea of practicing for one's personal awakening. Practicing for your own nirvana. But ra rather, we're practicing for other people's awakening. When you practice, it really helps the people around you. So if you do a day like this, and your, your partner is looking after the house or you know something... Uh, when you come back, um, they'll say, wow, you seem really different. Or, you know? And then they'll say, uh, you should do this more often. You should do this more. And then, you, you know, you'll win their support mm -hmm. right away. But don't ask them to come. This is the key. Uh, we used to have this rule at Center of Gravity, the community I ran in Toronto, where in the first year of your practice, you're allowed to ask family members to come once. And if they don't come, uh, you can't uh, ask them again for another year. And then after another year, if they don't come, uh, you can ask them one more time. And then uh, if they don't come, then you can get divorced or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we, were, we tried to like, talk about this a lot, and it sounds funny, but part of it is that when people get excited about a new practice, they just want everyone else to do it. Right? Oh, I'm feeling calm, so all my kids should be going to the teen retreat, you know. But actually, the most important thing is that you model the practice, that you model it in your family and in your community, and in your workplace, too. Because workplace is a site where there's a lot of unconscious um, aggression, uh, competitiveness, envy, jealousy, 
going on that doesn't get named or practiced. So us being able to know that, identify that that's what's going on for us can only happen when there's some spaciousness and equanimity. So I mention these examples so that you get a feeling that equanimity is not some like spiritual state you get into and it's there all the time, but rather it, it's, it's an injunction to constantly cultivate this quality because it helps other people, because it benefits other people. Um, can I keep going? Are there any comments or questions before I keep going? Um, last night um, when I was making these notes it was in the context of uh, uh, my son um, um, uh, wanting uh, to build little he's never encountered Lego before He's two. And we've been trying to avoid Lego just a little longer. But uh, uh, Lee and Melissa have a lot of toys. When you have three kids, you have a lot of toys. And Olin discovered the cupboard where all these toys were. And so he discovered all the Lego. And um, so uh, he was very clear, though, that he wanted uh, to take the Lego and get wheels on a flat piece. And that the wheels were not, because he also was playing with a skateboard, but the wheels were not to make a sp- skateboard, they were to make a car, not a skateboard. So then uh, uh, the girls had given him some like seats and uh, steering wheels and stuff, and he was really upset, getting really frustrated, because he didn't want the Lego turned into a car. It was a skateboard, but he couldn't articulate that it was a skateboard, and he was very frustrated. Um, and uh, whenever he's frustrated, I always take a great interest in how he manages his frustration. Just because I think that this is actually what we're doing when we're meditating, is that we're actually managing our frustration or soothing ourselves during our frustration. Because if you start looking at the loops of thoughts that happen in meditative practice, most of them are about not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, or being separated from something you feel really connected to. That's it, isn't it? (laughs) What else do we think about? It's the same stuff we were going through when we were a kid. Um, When we're satisfied, we then want something else. We're never satisfied with being satisfied. So it seems to me, culturally, Like, we need to have better stories about frustration. Most of our cultural stories are about how to get satisfied, you see. But what meditation practice is doing is teaching us to notice when we're content, but really use fine tools or cultivate tools to deal with our frustration. And I'm not talking about, like, frustrated because someone says something you don't like. I'm talking about like these deeper frustrations of being a human being and things not going the way that we think they're all supposed to go. We love people and they just don't turn out the way we expect them to turn out. 
And when you can get something that you want very easily, it tends to not be the thing you want. We mostly want the things we can't get easily. And if you can't get something, then you probably start wanting it more. So being able to work with your cravings deep down is being able to tolerate your frustrations. And it seems to me when you watch children that most of the time this is what they're managing in themselves is uh, how to deal with their constant frustration. So uh, we need a practice uh, for uh, frustration. And um, the reason frustration uh, is really important because is that when you can bring equanimity and mindfulness to frustration, you can discover new things that you want. You can discover new desires. So desire is not a bad thing. The problem with desire a lot is usually is that it's just too repetitive. It's not imaginative. So when you can actually be frustrated, you might recognize that what you thought you wanted isn't really what you wanted. And so when you can't bear frustration, you try to... So when you're really frustrated and you can't bear it, you try to fill it with a known want. But then that's ultimately not satisfying because it's a want you know already. So it doesn't expand your range of desire. It just keeps feeding the same pattern again. So... Maybe uh, the goal of being a healthy human being is to be surprised by your desires. I know in most spiritual teachings, the teacher is supposed to sit at the front of the room and say, you're not supposed to have any desires. But I don't think that's true. I actually think the opposite is true, is that uh, it would be interesting to have such a broad imagination that we could be surprised by all the things we desire, but because we have a practice, we don't necessarily need them all. But if your desire is always caught up in wanting a new boat, it's preventing, and you can fill in whatever your thing is, right? For me, it's just espresso. That's all I think about. Um, That's not an exaggeration. Um, When you have the same desire all the time, it prevents you from having an imagination that can want other things, you see. And it seems to me it's quite healthy to want other things all the time. We're wanting creatures. And I remember when I, when I worked more as a psychotherapist, that was one of the things I was always listening for when people were telling the story about their life, is whether they could say something that surprised them. So as they were talking, whether they could be talking about a known problem, but be surprised by re-articulating it in a new way. 
And this is why most people end up in psychotherapy deep down, is that the story they're telling about their life doesn't work anymore. And they don't know how to tell a different story. So equanimity is a quality of mind that allows us to be right in the middle of things so that different desires can come up and we can notice, oh, this one's worth feeding, this one's not worth feeding, as opposed to the same repetitive boat, 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 boat. Sorry, is that a bad example? I don't know. <laughs> What's another one? I don't know. I mean, you know, one I hear all the time is... Uh, friends of mine who are women who are in their 30s who don't want a baby. They don't want to be a mother. And how frustrated they are all the time that their culture is telling them that there's one want that they should have all the time, which is quite oppressive. And they're like, "That's that's not a want that I have. I want to have other wants, but I don't know how to tell that story. So let me ask you a question, which is, um, how can you be frustrated or disappointed without becoming cynical or vengeful or bitter? So how can you let life disappoint you? How can you become frustrated around not getting something you really want? Or how can you be frustrated by getting something you don't want, like an illness, without becoming vengeful or cynical or bitter? And so you can see that the answer to these questions really have to do with working with your mind. being able to have mindfulness established, being able to know the delight in being alive, being able to have energy in practice, and so on. So, um, I have other notes here, but I think I might stop here, which is... um, Uh, Basically, I just hope that you find all this helpful. I feel when I talk like I'm reinventing a wheel. (laughs) Or it's deja vu or something. uh, All of you know all this already. Uh, It's just we've been telling a story where we've forgotten somehow. And um, um, my approach is always, if, if I can just talk really clearly about my mind then I'll be talking about your mind. (laughs) Or if I can talk accurately about how I work with practice in my life, then I'll be talking about your life. And um, um, practice takes time. It's like you can't consume without digesting. But our, our culture is force-feeding us 
And so we don't even know if we're hungry anymore. We just keep eating. And then the same people who are distracted and who are being force-fed are designing the uh, apps and the video games and the technology that's reinforcing the distractedness. And it doesn't have to be that way. And it won't stay that way uh, if we can wake up to seeing this. So if you develop uh, equanimity, then you go against the grain of consumerism. And maybe once we used to say that the goal of all spiritual practice is compassion, but you know the goal of practice these days is just putting an end to consumerism <laughs> in our lives. Well, needing so much all the time. Some of you might know that a few years ago I went to I did a pilgrimage to Fukushima after the earthquake when the power plant was melting down. And I spent a lot of time with scientists and um, smart people. Uh, and um, they all would say the same, same thing, which is, yes, we have amazing new technology, we have wind power and nanotechnology, we have incredible uh, 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 developments in solar power production that are bringing down the cost of solar panels, not in Canada. And um, even so, none of these technologies work unless we reduce consumption. They don't work unless we can reduce how much we need. And I don't see how you can do that without being able to work with your emotions, <laughs> especially the afflictive ones because they give rise to consumerism. So I just want to end by saying that, that, that it's important as we talk about this stuff that it's not just like my equanimity so I'm balanced and I can just like not get upset at the choices supermarket when I get cut off at the cashier. But rather to also see that equanimity is a practice that we model because it goes against the grain of distraction and consumerism and is the beginning of actually building a different kind of economy. One where the, the capital that we can grow can be more rooted in natural capital, putting a lot of energy into uh, social services and medicine and education rather than uh, extraction. It's possible. So I'll stop here. Um, maybe we can talk for a few minutes about what you've heard or any thoughts you have. And then uh, we'll practice the corpse pose. And then um, I'll see you for silent retreat. <laughs>